At the conference that I was at the other week, I was getting a lift afterwards to, to Stoke with uh, someone else who'd been at the conference and who lived there. Uh, it's about tw- 20 minutes away. Uh, not long into the journey, we passed a, a sign for, for somewhere called Trentham Monkey Forest. And there was someone else in the car with us and he said, well, well, well what is that? Uh, and the driver said, well, it, it's a forest that has got monkeys in it. Uh, and it was, it was amusing because the question didn't really need to be asked. The, the sign told you all that you need to know. Uh, but as I've mentioned before, uh, the title of this book, it, its full title, The Acts of the Apostles, it, it maybe doesn't quite give us all that we need to know about the book uh, the names of the Bible books are not inspired. There, there were actually various suggestions made for a title for Acts, but this is the one that stuck uh, around the second century. Uh, but if Luke, who wrote the book, had been choosing a title for it, he may not have chosen this title. Uh, for example, the, the previous chapter, chapter 7, it's, it's a, a long, long chapter. Uh, one of the longest chapters of the Bible, but, but it doesn't feature any apostles. It just features Stephen. He's not an apostle. It doesn't feature any acts by him, uh, just a, a long speech uh, that ends up getting him killed. Uh, and last week we saw from the opening verses of this chapter that the events uh, that chapter 8 records are ultimately an act of God. God is the one acting here. He's using persecution to send the gospel out beyond Jerusalem. In his sovereignty, God is using the very thing that Satan wants to to use to snuff out the church, uh, to actually spread the church into many more regions and nations. At the start of chapter 8, the Christians haven't moved beyond Jerusalem even though Jesus had told him, told them that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so in verse 1, God acts, God scatters them. And in fact, the only people who aren't scattered are the apostles. And here in chapter 8, the focus is on the gospel going to Samaria and beyond, while the apostles are still in Jerusalem. The main human character in this chapter is Philip, who is a deacon and an evangelist, but not an apostle. And when the apostles do arrive halfway through the chapter, it's mainly to witness what God is doing as the Holy Spirit is poured out in this unlikely group of people. And so while the, the title of the book, it is what it is at this point, let's, let's never lose the sense uh, that this book is really the acts of the risen Jesus by his spirit through the church. It's about God's great plan to take the gospel to the nations. Uh, so what is Jesus doing by his spirit through the church here in Acts? Well, he's taking the gospel, uh, in Acts 8, he's taking the gospel to Samaria, uh, firstly. Uh, the Chapter in front of us describes the gospel going out both to Samaria and then via the Ethiopian eunuch to the ends of the earth. Uh, my plan th- this morning with the Spirit's help is to, to focus on Samaria and then next time, God willing, to come back and look at the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And So today uh, we have two headings. 
and we're going to see firstly how the message was spread how the message was spread two very important biblical truths that we need to remember and hold alongside one another are God's sovereignty and human responsibility God is sovereign but humans have responsibilities in every area of life God is sovereign that, that is a great thing, isn't it? It means that the universe isn't random. It means that nothing happens outside God's control. And it also means that God doesn't need us. But he also calls us to do certain things. Even though he doesn't need us, he chooses to use us. And when it comes to spreading the good news about Jesus, we'll go wrong if we don't remember both these things as we try and reach people with the gospel, we need to remember that God is sovereign. He is the one who opens hearts. It doesn't come down to our persuasiveness or anything like that, or our methods. Uh, perhaps someone has become a, a Christian recently and they say, right, I'm now going to go and convert the rest of my family. And um, I think many of you may have thought that when you first became a Christian but but soon you realize don't you that that it doesn't work like that if we want our family uh, to believe and be converted God must do it we, we soon realize that we can't convert anyone but at the same time the fact that God is sovereign doesn't mean that we're we're not to make any effort to reach the world around us we're not going to shrug our, our shoulders and say if God is going to save them he'll save them there's nothing we can do if we want our family to believe, that's unlikely to happen if we don't open our mouths and speak to them and share the gospel or invite them along to church. This book may not primarily be the, the Acts of the Apostles, but the Apostles and the others like Philip here and the ordinary believers, they still act. They're not passive. In fact, back in the 11th verse of the book, an angel had to, had to ask the apostles, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? Don't stand looking into the sky because the risen and ascended Lord has work for you to do. And so while relying on God for the results, we do need to have some idea of what our responsibility is when it comes to reaching the lost. And Acts chapter 8 can help us with that. What, what role do we have to play in reaching those around us? So this chapter is helpful, but it's also a chapter that people have interpreted very differently. Some see this chapter as teaching one thing about how the gospel is spread. Others see it as teaching the complete opposite. Some see this chapter as teaching that the gospel was spread solely by ordinary people uh, without any input from those who were called to specific roles in the church. After all, they say that the apostles are still in Jerusalem and so uh, the gospel here spreads simply by ordinary people gossiping the gospel uh, to their neighbours, colleagues and so on. They, they say... Uh, rightly I think that when we see the word preaching in verse 4 we shouldn't think of someone standing in a pulpit necessarily but just someone sharing the gospel with their friends uh, 
But in, in its more extreme forms, this type of teaching is used to, to guilt trip ordinary Christians that if they're not out knocking on people's doors or, or giving tracts to everyone they meet, then they're failing in the task of evangelism. Uh, so that's, that's one view. Uh, others who, who tend to be reacting against that first view point out that Philip here, he, he isn't a, a, a random guy. But as we learn from chapter 21 verse 8, he's actually an evangelist. And as we learn from Ephesians chapter 4, to be an evangelist was an official role in the early church that God equipped certain people for and called them to. And so what the second group of people say is that, that here in verse 4 we have a general statement that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And in verse 5 we have an example of what this looks like as Philip goes down to Samaria and proclaims to them the Christ. So when verse 4 says those who were scattered, it's particularly talking about those who had official roles in the church, evangelists. New Testament prophets and so on. And so having given you two conflicting options today, I want to suggest that the best answer is somewhere in the middle. And in saying that, I'm not coming up with anything new. I'm just echoing the words of someone called Matthew Henry. If you haven't heard of him, Matthew Henry is probably the most well-known Bible commentator there's ever been. He lived in the 1600s. A Bible commentary is just, just a book that has helpful little comments on every verse of the book of the Bible. Or in the case of those like Matthew Henry, comments on every verse or nearly every verse in the whole Bible. And Anyway, Matthew Henry says on verse 4 here, uh, it's on your handout. They went evangelizing the world. Those of them that were preachers in their preaching and others in their common converse or or common conversation. The most common interpretation of this passage today is where people emphasise that the gospel spread here through people talking to their friends. And those who who, who say that do actually have a point. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on verse 4, not someone who, who would devalue preaching. He says, preaching here does not mean standing in a pulpit, so to speak. Or, or at least I would add, it doesn't always mean that. The word is literally evangelizing. And we know that it doesn't necessarily mean standing in a pulpit to preach because later on in the same chapter, down in verse 35, the same word is used for Philip explaining the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. As he speaks to him one on one. In our version it's translated verse 35 as Philip told him the good news about Jesus. Other versions translate it as Philip preached Jesus onto him. Uh, But whatever way you you translate it it's clearly just a one on one encounter. And so to to go back to verse 4 where it uses the same word to say that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. We can't limit that to a man speaking to a crowd of people, whether in a building or out in the open air. It can describe someone sitting down with their neighbour and explaining the gospel to them. And there would have been natural opportunities to to do that following this persecution. 
Remember that these Christians moved from Jerusalem to the different regions of Judea and Samaria because of the persecution. And as they moved to, their pla- to these places, their, their new neighbours would have been asking them, well, well, what brings you here? And that would have been a perfect opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Or as their new neighbours asked them, why don't you do some of the things that we do? Or, or wh- why do you keep Sunday special all of a sudden? So as these Christians are, are spread through all these regions, that they would have opportunities to share the gospel. But at the same time, that's not in competition with those who are called by God to preach the word. Now, the two things complement one another. And that's where the second approach to this chapter is helpful because it reminds us that even though the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, there were those who were scattered, uh, like Philip, men who held office in the church and had been specifically called and commissioned to proclaim, to preach the gospel. Philip became a deacon back in chapter 6. But as I mentioned earlier, in chapter 21, he's described as an evangelist. And presumably his role changed from deacon to evangelist after the death of Stephen. Stephen's death promoted Stephen to martyr and it made Philip an evangelist. So what were evangelists? There are many today will use the term, but... Did it mean the same thing in the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, evangelists were men who weren't apostles, but were closely associated with them. As we see here in verses 6 and 7, they were able to do the same sort of miracles that the apostles did. Uh, So they they weren't apostles, but like the apostles, they were miracle-working preachers. And so we don't believe that there are evangelists in that sense today. The New Testament doesn't make any provision for the continuing office of evangelist. Uh, The closest equivalent today would be a minister. Although, of course, there there can be ministers who who are are commissioned to to a region uh, rather than than simply simply one church. So you can have a a minister who's traveling about. but, but, But in that sense, we don't have evangelists today. But the big point that I'm trying to make here and uh, those details, I think that they're, they're important that, that I've mentioned, but this is, this is the bigger point, is that the gospel here spreads both through the preaching of men who were called to that task and through ordinary people speaking to their friends and neighbours. Uh, it spreads through both uh, The gospel to go out to the world, it needs both those who are are called and commissioned to do that work full time, but it also needs ordinary people speaking to friends, neighbours and colleagues. I think we can say as well that those who were called to publicly preach did so proactively, whereas for the ordinary people it was more reactive In verse 5, Philip goes down to the city of Samaria, probably means the capital city of Samaria, and proclaims Christ there. No doubt there were other Christians in the city already. We've been told that that they were spread to all the regions of Samaria. 
So there would have been other Christians here already and they're not doing what Philip is doing. But perhaps they've already been having conversations with their new neighbours. And when Philip comes to town, maybe they say, well, well why not come and hear him? Or they offer their neighbours whether they want Philip to come and meet with them one-on-one, as some of you have asked me to do. The point is that if we interpret this chapter as saying that the good news was only spread through official ministers, or if we think it was only spread through ordinary people, we'll not have it quite right. Both those things are needed. To say it was done only by one or the other. They're both overemphases. They needed both in Samaria and so do we in Stranraer. If we're to reach this community with the gospel, we need both. We need a man or men who God has officially called and commissioned for the work. But we also need ordinary people living among unbelievers working with them, spending time with them during the week, and looking for opportunities to share the gospel. Uh, and what, what a joy it is when, when you tell me uh, of opportunities that, that you've had, uh, whether that's a Bible study or, or just uh, get a text during the week about, about people that you've had opportunities to, to speak to about the gospel. So firstly, this morning we have how the message was spread. But then secondly, how the message was received. How the message was received. What happens in Samaria is amazing. In fact, it's sometimes referred to as the Samaritan Pentecost. And we'll come back and look in more detail about what that is next time, God willing. Uh, But it is very similar to the day of Pentecost that happened back in chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came down in a dramatic way and 3,000 people were saved, many of whom had the blood of Jesus on their hands. So there was an amazing transformation on the day of Pentecost and it's the same here with the, the Samaritan Pentecost this city that had been so opposed to Jerusalem and the Jews, you know, we, we read the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, but they now listen to a man who's come from Jerusalem who tells them about a Jew who's died and risen again. Verse 8, which we looked at last week, tells us that they responded joyfully. And verse 12 tells us that they believe and are baptised, both men and women. And in fact, even a man called Simon believes. A man who had previously practised magic, a man who people attributed a godlike quality to. Even Simon believes and is baptised. The gospel is penetrating the strongholds of darkness spiritualism and magic and it can do the same today what excitement there must have been when Simon is converted and yet what followed must have been such a disappointment because it actually becomes clear that Simon had never really been converted And something that we've seen in this book so far is that challenges and hardships for the church don't just come from the outside. 
in terms of persecution, but they also come from the inside. Yes, there has been persecution from the outside from almost the very beginning. We, we see that at the beginning of this chapter. But in the book of Acts so far, there have also been false believers such as Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. Uh, there have also been true believers falling out with each other as we see in chapter 6. But the case of Simon seems to be a bit different from that of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. You may remember Ananias and Sapphira, they had sold a field and they had claimed to be giving all the proceeds from it to the church. They claimed to be giving all the proceeds but actually they'd only given some. And the problem wasn't that they'd only given some they were under no obligation to give all the proceeds to the church. The problem was that they lied about it. They were pretending to be something that they weren't. Ananias and Sapphira weren't believers and they knew that they weren't. And they deliberately went about deceiving others for as long as they could get away with it. But with Simon it seems more likely that he is first and foremost deceiving himself. He doesn't see a problem in verse 19 with offering the apostles money so that he too can lay hands on people and give them the Holy Spirit as he thinks. But the problem is that he hasn't really understood the gospel. He doesn't get what motivates the apostles to do what they do. John Calvin, a reformer and another great Bible commentator, he says that when it comes to Simon, he's probably somewhere in between true faith and mere pretense. Probably somewhere in between true faith and mere pretense. And I think he's right. Simon isn't trying to mislead anyone here. He's not trying to pretend that he's someone he's not. And yet it's clear from his actions that his heart hasn't really been changed. Now, it would be scary to be in Ananias and Sapphira. To be sitting in church knowing that you don't believe any of this, but acting as if you do. Whether that's to, to try and please other people or get them off your back or, or whatever. But it would be even scarier to be a Simon. Thinking you have believed the gospel when you haven't. Being part of a church community while... Deep down, knowing you don't believe it, well, that would be a terrible thing, but at least you would know where you stand. But to think that you're a Christian when you actually aren't, that prospect is even more scary because you wouldn't even realise the danger you were in. So how can you know if this is you? If you have managed to deceive yourself about being a Christian what are some signs to look out for well for a start Simon warns you what you can't trust in and that is you can't trust in any experience you may have gone through Simon has believed at a time when many other people are believing 
This is a, a unique time for the church in Samaria. Many, many people are being converted. And at a time uh, where, where other people are being converted, uh, it, it's easy to, to, to go along with that and think you have been converted too. And Simon is caught up in it all. Maybe he went through an emotional experience as Philip preached the gospel. The fact that we're told that he believes suggested that he accepted the facts that Philip was presenting. Maybe we think, well, how can, how can the Bible say that he believes if, if he didn't believe? Well, that he believed on an intellectual level, but that's all. To, to use the, the old illustration of, of a chair, he, he, he believed that the chair could hold his weight, but he never actually sat on the chair. He didn't exercise faith. Remember that the, the demons believe in God and shudder. Simon may believe the facts, but his heart hasn't been changed so that he has love for Jesus. And like Simon, you may have gone through a dramatic conversion experience. You may feel born again. No doubt Simon did, but he wasn't truly saved. So don't trust in experiences, uh, feelings. Uh, Simon also warns you not to trust in outward ceremonies. Perhaps you've been baptised, maybe become a member of the church. But verse 13 tells us that Simon was baptised and yet in verse 21 Peter tells him that his heart isn't right before God. Some of our brothers and sisters in Christ talk about believers' baptism. and They say that they don't baptise children because they only want to baptise those who are genuine believers. But one of the problems with that is that we can't see into people's hearts. Even the apostles baptised people who turned out not to be genuine believers. Of course that in and of itself it doesn't end the baptism debate. But, but even if I was a Baptist I wouldn't want to be using the phrase believers baptism. Because if we're only going to baptise those who we know for certain have been saved we couldn't actually baptise anyone. Of course, when Simon was baptised, Philip would have thought at the time that he was a genuine believer, but that turns out not to be the case. So what other warning signs do we see from Simon that, that could be relevant to someone here? Well, another one of the warning signs for Simon is that he still sees things from a worldly point of view. He thinks that he can obtain the gift of God with money. Being able to, to lay hands on people and see them receive the Holy Spirit, that sounds like a great thing to Simon. And it doesn't sound great to him because he wants God to use him to bless others, but because it will exalt him. Simon looks at it and thinks that he can get the same kudos that he once got from magic, but just through Christianity. He's thinking of Christianity purely in worldly terms. Look at his logic in verses 18 and 19. If, you give, if I give you money, you can give me the power to administer the Holy Spirit. He sees what they're doing, but he doesn't see why they're doing it. You know, perhaps even someone 
today listening to, to a, a powerful preacher in a big congregation where, where, where people flock to hear the preacher and someone sits there thinking, I would love to do that. I would love to have people hanging on my words like that. Uh, and, yet, and yet it's the wrong motives. Simon says, if, you, if I give you money, you can give me the, the power to administer the Holy Spirit. What a terrible thing that is to say. And yet is it really that far from how some people talk today? Take the man who, who says he won't be back at church because although he gives money every week, he isn't allowed to take the Lord's Supper. Whether he's saved or, or not, apparently doesn't come into it. He doesn't think that's relevant. And that's not a made-up example, by the way. You know, if someone says... I believe in Jesus, what do I need to do to be able to take the Lord's Supper? Well, that's a conversation that I love to have. But it's night and day different from someone who says, I give money every week, so why can't I take it? Someone who looks at it as a transaction. Maybe you wouldn't say anything as blunt as that, but there can be an attitude in churches where people say, well, I give in money or I've been here a long time. And so if things aren't done the way I think they should be done, then I'm off or or at least I'm going to let everybody know that I'm not happy and that I don't approve. And it's a worldly, transactional way to look at church that that money given or or time served uh, means things should be done how you want. Or to go back to what we were thinking about last week, if you decide to talk to people at church uh, just the way an unbeliever would decide to talk to people at a gathering they were at, uh, based on, on who you know, who you like, who you think you might have shared interests with, is that not, not a worldly way of looking at church? Like Simon, someone may make a profession of faith but long term their life will usually show whether it's genuine or not so how do the apostles respond to Simon's request well Peter is blunt with him and he needs to be blunt with him verse 20 may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Peter is blunt with him because Simon needs to be woken up to his true spiritual condition. And there may be times when we need to say to someone, Friend, I know you've been baptised. I know you've stopped doing some of the things that you once did in your old life, but, and yet your life is still so dominated by the world. I really don't see any evidence that you're a believer. And in fact, Simon's response just proves Peter's point. Rather than cry out to God himself, he asks Peter to pray for him. Peter says, verse 22, pray to the Lord. But Simon says, will you pray for me? And he says, verse 24, Pray to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon you. He seems more concerned with the consequences that he might face than about the fact that his heart isn't right before God. 
And so those would not have been easy words for Simon to hear. This would not have been, a, been a, an experience that the church in Samaria would have welcomed. And yet Simon is actually in a much better position at the end of this chapter than he was when he was still part of the church and acting and believing himself like he was the same as everyone else. Because he now at least knows where he stands He's had an apostle tell him that he isn't right before God. And the desire behind that is to wake him up to his true condition. And that's what those of us who are elders are called to do for people in the same condition. Uh, to bring church discipline against people whose profession and whose lives are radically different. Even eventually if they don't repent, to excommunicate those who persistently say with their lips that they believe in Jesus, but whose lives say the opposite. And yet even at that point, even if it comes to that, there is still hope. Because while it is a very serious thing for the elders of a church to say to someone that we can no longer regard you as a Christian, it's actually God's mercy to say to someone in that state, that if they continue on in that state, they can have no hope of heaven. And so I've heard it said, don't join a church that won't be willing to kick you out. Don't join a church that won't be willing to kick you out. Or, or, or don't join a church that won't be willing to say hard things to you. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. It's not that we ever want to see it happen but a church that will just let you continue on indefinitely if you're living in clear, unrepentant sin, it wouldn't actually be loving you. It wouldn't actually be loving you. A church that let me continue on as a minister, whatever I was doing during the week, as long as I stood up in the pulpit on a Sunday, that wouldn't be loving me either. And this is the last we hear of Simon. Did he ever truly believe? We don't know. Like the rich young ruler who, who came to Jesus, he goes off, it's the last we hear of him. There's a question mark as to what happened. They both leave the pages of Scripture in a serious position, and yet neither leave without hope. If only Simon will do what Peter has told him to do and repent and pray for forgiveness. So there, there is a, a big sobering note to, to this chapter. But the big picture of these first 25 verses is that the gospel continues to spread. Yes, the gospel falls on different kinds of soil, as Jesus said it would, but it continues to spread. Verse 25 concludes, speaking of the apostles, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Despite the persecution in verse 3, despite the disappointment of a dramatic conversion turning out not to be, so the words of Jesus are still being fulfilled. The gospel is going out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and as we'll see next time to the ends of the earth. There are always two reactions to the gospel. 
Some people believe and some people don't. Sadly, at times, even the people who, who think they have believed haven't. And if they can't see that themselves, God, in his grace, may use their church to point that out to them. That's why it's important to be part of a church so that if, if you do end up going off in a dangerous direction, you'll have people who can call you to account for that. But the gospel continues to spread because neither persecution from the outside or disappointment from within can stop Jesus' great plan to spread the message of his salvation to the ends of the earth. Amen. Well, having looked today at Peter's hard but necessary words to Simon, we'll sing in closing from Psalm 141. Psalm 141, 1 to 5, on page 345. Praying in the second half of verse 4. Or, or sorry, the second half of verse 3. Oh, let not any evil thing then turn away my heart. And particularly verse 5. Oh, let a righteous man strike me. It's kindness to correct. It's oil upon my head. So let my head not it reject. Sadly, in the RP Church in Ireland, there was a man a number of years ago who was being... He was, he was a minister. He hadn't been a minister for that long. He was being abusive. He was being deceitful. And he, he was brought uh, to, to trial for it in the courts of the church. He, he refused to take part in any of it. Uh, and at the meeting where he was deposed from the ministry, this passage was preached on, let a righteous man strike me. Uh, that's, that's what we should want. It's not something we should run from. If you were in the same position as Simon, claiming to be a Christian but not living like it, would you be willing for someone to come and warn you about it from God's word? It wouldn't be a pleasant thing to go through by any means, but sometimes God in his kindness strikes us in order to wake us up. He wounds in order to heal. He wounds in order to heal. Psalm 145, 1-5, uh, we'll stand and sing praise. <laughs>